The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your kindness to gather us together. We come together every week in this setting, and in some ways it becomes habit. But it is a kind gift that you give us, a chance to gather as a body, to hear from you, and to to commune with you in a different way. Thank you. Thank you for your family, the church. Thank you for the ability to sing and to pray and to hear your word. We trust that you give us these gifts because really in in them and through them you want to give us yourself. You want to draw us into your presence and and cause us to sit with you and to, to be at your feet, to hear from you and to enjoy your goodness. Would you do that this morning? And I pray also, maybe because of the material that we're looking at this morning, that you would the material we begin to look at this morning, that you, would, that you would not just meet us in this time this morning or in, in these next number of sermons from the Psalms, but that you, would, that you would bless us in a multiplying way by moving us towards the Psalms in general. I guess I'm asking, Lord, that you would create an appetite in us for this particular piece of your Scripture you would move us towards it so that we can experience some of the, the sweetness there and, and meet you in this different way. So create some of that this morning too. Meet us and move us towards the Psalms. And address the particular problem in this Psalm when it's in us, how we, how we react, how we, how we walk in affliction. Lord, speak here, be clear, help sort out all the the confusing things here. Speak, build your people, build your church, and honor your name. Give clarity to my words and focus to our listening and build your church. Thank you, Lord. We trust this all to you. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the Psalms a collection of poetic songs, poetic songs written by many different God-inspired authors gathered then by ancient Israel and used for worship, prayer, reflection, as well as instruction because these songs, these poems, they also teach but there's clearly truth presented here and, and meditated on or within them. But as poetry, it does it in a little bit of a different way. The Gospel of Luke, which we just finished studying, is explicitly introduced as a product of research and reporting aimed at giving assurance of facts regarding Jesus. You remember that. And so in some ways, Luke reads like history, like, like a history book, like a newspaper, and it teaches by reporting examples and recording speeches and statements, and then the emotion 
comes on after the facts. But it presents as, here's the facts, and then we emotionally follow on after that. Psalms, on the other hand, work in an opposite way. The emotion's right up front. Emotion leads, like all poetry, like all songs. It's, it's front-loaded, it leads with the heart, and it, and it shows us vividly sometimes the feelings of lived-out life. So as such, if you were to just read the Psalms, and, and a lot of people do this, and I, I want to say this so that people will listen to this properly, if you just read or just listen to the Psalms without the context of the rest of the Bible, without the, the rest of the teaching, the explicit teaching and instruction in the rest of the Bible, you could really easily get off track. So you follow the cries and the, the emotion, the, the elation or the, or the, the fears you can really get off track and draw out things that just aren't true from these inspired poems. The wrong conclusions. But anchored in the rest of the Bible, anchored in the truth of the rest of the Bible, then what we find in the rest of the Bible, then we, we learn it in a new way. It becomes more vivid. It becomes more emotionally connected to us. So we read and pray and sing the Psalms in their context, but we do so always keeping in mind the rest of the story, the rest of the Bible, and for us particularly, keeping in mind the gospel. Keep that in mind too. This is the songbook of the faithful follower of Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament, the God who is. It's the, it's the song of the people of God through the ages, and it should be the song of, of us today. So as I prayed, part of my hope in, in dealing with the Psalms is that you would be drawn to them and you would see maybe some new reason to spend time there, to use this as your prayer book, if you will, song book for, for your personal reflection. There, there is so much good here. People of God have known it throughout the ages and I would hope that you would find this and, and maybe you would take a psalm. When I preach a psalm, you would you would notice he didn't touch on all those things there. And some of those, some of those aspects I, I should reflect on more. And that you would maybe take the psalm home and on your Sabbath day you would spend time in it. Maybe even just the very same day. And pray it yourself and work through it. Meditate on it yourself. The psalms are actually collected into five books, each with a slightly different emphasis. In the past, we've taken a look at the first three books, so now we're going to look a little bit at book four, which includes Psalms 90 through 106. I won't preach every psalm there, just some selected ones, but we'll get a good feel for what book four is about. Particularly, we'll notice one of the, one of the themes there is the, the sovereign king, God as sovereign king. So it's particularly God-centered in that way. It calls us to reflect on him. And as such, Psalm 90 is a good place to start. The heading attached to Psalm 90 clarifies for us that this is written by Moses. And as such, Psalm 90 may be the oldest of all the Psalms. Which raises another question right away. Why is the oldest of all the Psalms written by Moses, who lived before all the other psalmists, David and the other priests and whatnot, why is the oldest psalm here at number 90 and not number one? Shouldn't it be first? Well, the reason is, 
The psalm book is, is constructed in a way that's not just chronological, nor is it just random, but rather it's, it's grouped together, certain psalms put together for certain reasons. And if we realize that, you can often notice connections and reasoning between certain psalms or amongst clusters of certain psalms placed in relation to each other. For instance, Psalms 1 and 2, they're first, not because they were written first, but because their themes cover all of life and cover all the rest of the Psalter, the psalm book. If you think like this, if you notice thematic connections, you begin to see them, certainly not as tightly as in one book written by one author all in order, but you notice, begin to notice connections like exists right here at Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is put here deliberately right after Psalm 89. If you look back at Psalm 89, what would you notice there? The steadfast love of the Lord who made a covenant with his servant David, in verse 3. Who found David and anointed him and made him the highest of all the kings in all the earth with a covenant that will stand firm forever. It's verse 28. The Lord has sworn it. Psalm 89, verse 35. But... There's a great turn, verse 38, but that's not what we see now. Now you've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath towards your anointed. Wrath. We're going to see that mentioned in Psalm 90. And so what happened? Then the conquering of Jerusalem and the exile of the people of God. They were carried out of the land and they suffered under consequence, afflicted by God, all because of their sin against him. They sin and the covenant Lord brings consequence to them. And then they cry out, verse 46, how long, O Lord? We'll see that in our psalm as well. How long? How long do we have to face the affliction that we're suffering under? How long will your wrath burn like fire? That's the end of Psalm 89, and Psalm 90 is put right here after it because Psalm 90 with Moses in the wilderness, remember the wilderness context of Moses' life, faces similar things. He's going to ask the same sorts of questions, and then he's going to pray, pointing us on towards answers. So that's all important for us to understand as we come to Psalm 90 because there's nothing in Psalm 90 that is meant to do this sort of thing to you. To accuse you. To convict you of sin. That's not here. Rather, the context is assuming that's already felt. Now what? So most pointedly, the, the context, the, the place where we as, we as readers of Psalm 90 or listeners of Psalm 90 need, need to sit is, is not being accused of sin, but rather already aware. I've sinned, I've acted foolishly, in some way I've turned from God, and I'm, and I'm seeing some of the consequence of that. That's, that's where you sit, you fit perfectly into this psalm. It's one of God's servants, as Moses says here twice, who is being afflicted by God, as Moses says towards the end of the psalm. 
Moses and, and the people of God, it's always we and our, God's servants, whom he has afflicted, whom he has made to see evil, sitting, whether it's in Babylon in exile or in the wilderness wandering around, sitting there and wondering, ah, now what? And that's, that's where it connects to us. If you pray this psalm, not being in Babylon, not being in the, in the Sinai desert, but if you pray this psalm recognizing that a lot of these historical events in the Bible, they, they actually happened and they also are used as, as models of things that happen in our own lives such that we can say, I have been saved out of bondage and I am not yet home. I'm still on the way for all of my life and along that path from time to time, who needs to be convinced of this, from time to time, we sin in grievous ways sometimes. We think and we behave very foolishly. We fail, we blow it, totally mess it up. Our hearts are prone to wander still in this life while we're headed home. And sometimes that is in a dramatic and alarming way that everybody sees Adultery. Christians sometimes commit adultery and theft and sometimes exhibit a violent outburst, sometimes hit somebody. Christians do that sometimes. Clear Everybody sees it big. And then other times, more simple, quiet, slow burn, unfaithfulness characterizes us that maybe nobody sees, but it's there, becoming captured by worldly greed, perhaps. Becoming proud and self-dependent, perhaps, or focused on career and performance because that's where you've come to find your life. That's what you really live off. That's where significance is. So you're pursuing that hard Forgetting God, even while you're sitting in church, really pursuing something else. It's, it's in there. Nobody sees it, but it's in your heart, and God sees it. And in his time and in his way, he brings affliction to us as a consequence. Now what? What do I do with that? If that's you, you sit perfectly in this psalm. And we have to acknowledge that sometimes I don't really know if that's me because the, do I sin? Sure, of course. Do I experience hardship in life? Sure, of course. I'm not sure if that's affliction because of that. I don't know. But if you face affliction, you, you still fit here. And even if you're not facing even affliction, you, you still fit here because what God says to us applies to people, applies to all of us in, in all of life. So you're most perfectly in this if you're sensing God's hand on you but we're all here. We all can listen to this, asking, what do I do here? Has God, I, I, I'm not sensing his nearness, I'm not sensing his pleasure. I'm, what do I do here? Has he turned away from me? Has he forgotten me? What now? In that context, Moses, the man of God, begins to pray. Psalm 90. 
Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O child of, children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? For your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Two observations that I'll make from the psalm. Here's the first. This is... What do do I do? How should I be thinking of of life in this spot? Seek godly wisdom in the fear of the Lord and the truth of fading, fleeting life. Seek godly wisdom in the fear of the Lord and the truth of fading, fleeting life. I take this from verses 11 and 12, which together form the hinge. If you look at it, they form the hinge of, of this whole psalm prayer. The connection point between the first half, which is more about reflection, and the second half, which is more about requesting. So there's, there's a hinge right there, a pivot point of summary, telling us what we're to get out of the first half as we move into asking God in the second half. And looking at the very end of verse 12, we, we see the goal that we may get a heart of wisdom. God has to give it, so it's a request. But it comes, God gives it, as we reflect on the material that he just covered. He was just introducing to us. So let's look back at that. We begin with God, the one who is and who is mighty and grand. 
Moses says, before the mountains were brought forth or created, birthed literally, before you formed the earth and all the creation, all the world, the dust and the water of this planet and the sun and the moon and the stars, the, the heavens high and distant lifted up. You can see Moses' eyes moving up here from larger to larger to larger. He's got mountains and then all of the earth and all of the world in view here. Vast scope and you, Lord, formed it all, birthed it. And before it was, you are. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternity past to eternity future, from before anything that was created was created, God. God is. There's only one true God, the Lord. This Lord, he's God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the one who for all generations past has been our dwelling place. Verse 1. And he's not, he's not saying he's the dwelling place of all humanity. He's the dwelling place of us. He's our dwelling place. This is Moses referring to us and ours, the covenant people of God, his servants, as he calls us later a couple times. Wandering in the wilderness with no home, pilgrims, later living in exile, or later strangers and aliens in the world, the Lord everlasting, he is the one through all generations who is the dwelling place, who is the refuge for his people, for us. We dwell in him. In him we find shelter. So Moses begins this whole book four and then this particular psalm with this picture of, of God. And you, you should look here small and you should look up at the mountains and you should look at, at, at the globe and you should look at the stars and say, he formed all of that and before he did, he was. God eternal. But we are not. One writer said the path of God's people through the wilderness was marked by grave sites. You could tell where they'd been by following the graves. You return man to dust. Echoes of the sad language of Genesis 3. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. What a contrast here. God, who returns man to dust. So take that in and be wise. There are numerous poignant expressions in the first half of the psalm here about the brevity of human life. People spring up like grass. We, we flourish in the morning and then we fade away with the evening. We give away life like a sigh. You know, there goes, there goes Napoleon. There goes Caesar. There goes King X of Realm Y gone, gone, 
when people live, when, when we grow up and, and move and work and, and exercise dominion, we, we look around and we see life as, as strong and powerful and long-lasting, but it really isn't. It's maybe 70, perhaps 80 years long. And even what we have here, it's full of trouble and despair. And then, whew, gone. We fly away. And nobody can remember who was king of France in 1715. Probably most French people don't even know who was king of France in 1715. We're big and strong and mighty, except that we aren't. And it's just, we are flowers quickly fading. And every day of every one of our lives, and finally at the end, but every day of every one of our lives, all of it is accountable to God, to this God who is holy and therefore strongly and passionately dislikes sin. This point about God opposing sin, it's hinted at in the, the return of people to dust because after all, that's from Genesis 3 and death comes because of sin. God opposes sin. But we have also specific mention of sin and God's wrath and anger against it Words are then there five times with anger and wrath used in parallel interchangeably. Clearly here, those words perfectly fit Moses where he sits in the wilderness wandering, perfectly fits people in exile. But some of us, probably as I was reading that, and many people today, we kind of, we draw up at that because in one sense, those words don't fit Christians. They don't. And so at some point, when Christians read this, we kind of begin to wonder, what do, we, what do we do with that? And probably most people skip that because we can very much connect with the brevity of life elements. We, we focus on that and we ignore the rest of it. Because it's tricky. But we shouldn't skip over it. We should think about it. And we do have something to notice there because if wrath and anger there in Psalm 90 means the same thing as it does, say, off of Paul's pen in Ephesians 2, then it doesn't apply to a Christian. It's Paul in Ephesians 2, and you can find this in plenty of other places, but Paul in Ephesians 2 will talk about how we, talking about Christians, used to be children of wrath, but not anymore. Having become Christians now, we're children of God. No longer children of wrath. So they've got an either or. You're either a child of wrath or you're a child of God. And Christians are children of God, not of wrath. Of course, if, if we think like that, then in that sense, Moses also is a child of God, not a child of wrath. As is Joshua, son of Nun, who's there with him as would be countless other faithful Israelites there with them. They're in the wilderness because of sin, but a whole bunch of those people were actually brought into the land of Canaan, and God used them to conquer the land, right? They were faithful. So there are a whole bunch of people here who are not children of wrath, like Christians aren't children of wrath. Yet Moses uses these words. What's he getting at? Well, the reason he can say this with regards to people that he also calls God's servants is that he's not talking about whether or not they're saved. He's not talking about it in an, an either or absolute sense, either a child of wrath or a child of God. 
This isn't what we might call an eternal destiny statement. He's talking about the anger of a holy, holy, holy God against sin. Wherever and however, in whomever he sees it. See this and be wise. This eternal God of ours, he is holy, holy, holy. He's righteous and just, a consuming fire with regards to sin, says Hebrews 12 in the New Testament to the church. A consuming fire with regards to sin, all sin, and that includes ours, we might even say especially ours, because we're his people and we bear his name. Just like if you're a parent, you're, you're more concerned about your own kids' behavior than you are about the neighbor kids. He's concerned about sin. As Hebrews 12 tells us, My son, do not regard the discipline of the Lord lightly. So we should see this and see him as regarding this carefully, as, as concerned about it, as highly motivated against sin. And we ourselves should take note of that, not take it lightly. We should note that his chastisement of his people, that's also in Hebrews 12 to the church. It can be very painful in life. Never, never minding at the end, in, in, at the seat of judgment, when Paul says to the church again that we all will appear, we Christians will appear before him to receive what's due us for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Never mind that. Throughout life now, God disciplines who? Those he loves. His people. So this God of ours, he sees us through and through and he sees our sinfulness. It's always before him and we, we can never know when, how, to what degree he will respond to it. Maybe if you sit perfectly in the context of the psalm. Maybe you're experiencing some of that right now. And as I'm talking about this, I'm not trying to convict you of sin again. You hear this and you don't, you don't need to be convicted because you are, as Moses' audience, well aware, yes, I know me. I know what I've done. And I see God's hand on me. Maybe that's you. But even if it isn't, either way, this still speaks to us because the same point, God speaks to his people saying, get a heart of wisdom. Get a heart of wisdom. And that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And it includes an awareness of the truth of fading, fleeting life. That's right there in verses 11 and 12. Moses asks, right in this hinge, Moses asks a rhetorical question that's really expressing what should be. Verse 11. Put it like this. I wonder, I wonder how many of your servants consider the power of your anger. I wonder if your servants, sitting here in the wilderness, sitting in the, in the middle of sin and its consequences, do they consider how strongly, how stridently you are against sin. Not just as a doctrine. 
I, I reckon that everyone who's a Christian here, I mentioned Hebrews 12, and I talk about the discipline of the Lord. I reckon everybody who's a Christian here is familiar with that passage, has read it, agrees with it, acknowledges it. But Moses' rhetorical question here is, I wonder how many of your people actually consider it. I wonder how many of your people actually think with, with careful regard about that, not just as a doctrine, but as who you are and how you are. How many of your people say, God hates the sin but loves sinners? And don't stop to think, you know what that means? Is that it also means that he hates the sin. It, it does mean that he loves sinners, for sure. But it also means that he hates the sin. He's a holy, holy, holy God. So part of what, what should come to us here is, is a recognition. That's how God looks at sin. God is against it. And if we were to think like that, that's where the fear of the Lord starts. Which is the beginning of wisdom. You see the fear of the Lord at the end of verse 10 and the heart of wisdom, which is the goal in verse 11. Or, or 11 and 12, I'm sorry. These two things are linked together. And this has to be a part of numbering our days. Numbering our days is, is not to be, just in verse 12, teaches to number our days. Not just to say, I have a certain number of days left, and then to become kind of vaguely melancholy or nostalgic about passing, fleeting life. But instead to stop and think, I have a, a life that I'm living before God, and it's passing away. I'm going to live it somehow or another. How am I going to live it? For what? For whom? A piece of this has to be the fear of the Lord. So first, to God's people, Moses reflecting here, leading us through reflection, wants us to consider where maybe you sit in the middle of God's hand upon you, or, or maybe not. E either way, God's goal here is that we would be a people who are wise. Biblical wisdom is not just smarts. It's living life in regards to God, in regards to what's true that we would be a people who are wise. And we would regard sin as, as the hot stove. And we would not toy with it. We would pull away from it because we so strongly see, we so clearly see God and so strongly want to please Him and do not want to displease Him. One thing that, that sometimes when, when you're experiencing the affliction of God, ironically, one of the things we forget is repentance. So maybe if this is you, this, there's, there's a word here about repentance. And if it's not you at, at the moment, there's a word here about wisdom. To fear the Lord, to see Him as against sin, and to see that my life is running away from me, quickly fading. To get that also can make a 
person wise. And I don't here mean anything about God's judgment. I mean perspective. Doesn't much, doesn't much temptation and much foolishness and much waste in our lives come from an imbalanced focus on, on the right now, on the immediate? Not all of it, but, but much of it. If you're an older person around teenagers, it's easy to say half the problem there is that living for the here and now. And if you're an elderly person around older adults, you can say half the problem here is they're living for here and now. It's, it's human. It's a basic problem. We pour ourselves into, we spend our resources, and we devote energy to, and we fear and worry about stuff that, that in a little bit of time, with a little bit bigger perspective, we realize that wasn't that big of a deal. It didn't really matter. Well, to develop a heart of wisdom, if God would teach us this, if God would grow, in, grow this in us, Part of it includes a fear of the Lord, but part of it includes just a, a larger picture, a bigger perspective, that everything that we are tempted to, to hitch our horses to is, is just stuck here in this world and quickly passing away. Were flowers quickly fading? So is everything in the world. To think with a bigger, with an eternal perspective, to see with larger eyes if God would work this in us, it would make us very circumspect with regards to sin and very concerned to live a life that matters. And that's God's goal in, in his discipline of us, to turn us away from sin, to turn us back to himself, and to turn us into a life that matters in the big picture forever. Seek a heart of wisdom. Reflect on, grow in the fear of the Lord and in the brevity of life. Be convinced of that. Everybody knows that, but be, be convinced of it. Reflect on it. Consider it. May God help us and teach us and shape our minds to see with larger eyes and to see God. To grow in wisdom and the fear of Him and the perspective on eternity. And in the beauty of his good love for us. Which takes us to the second point. The first point can feel, the reflection can feel, especially to people who are sitting in it, can feel like more load. It's an acknowledgement of of how God is working and a call to turn from sin, turn to him. But if that's all there is, then it's just kind of bleak, I think. I, I'm, I'm a person who's really in touch with the melancholy. So I can resonate with the first half of that by itself, but it leaves me in, at least in the dusk, if not in the dark. It leaves me kind of mourning, kind of saddened, and a little bit like 
this. If it, if that's where it stops. And one of the great challenges when you're sitting under God's hand is to feel like, well, I guess that's it. I have screwed up one too many times, and there's no hope. I'm, I'm done for. We feel that in ourselves because sometimes people deal with each other like that. You're dead to me. We're done. But also realize that you have, you have an enemy who wants to whisper that in your ear because he wants you to think God's done with you. To when you experience God's hand of affliction on you, he wants to convince you, this enemy of yours, that that's permanent, that's decisive, that's destructive. It's coming from a God who is permanently angry with you. So in some ways it feels natural, and there's a voice telling you that's the case. And so it's easy to sit in that, in the wilderness, and just say, I guess I'm doomed to wilderness wandering. And then I'll die and face the judgment. Is that true? Well, Moses keeps talking. He keeps praying. And here's the second observation. Seek the Lord in faith for he remains our soul-satisfying dwelling place. Seek the Lord in faith, for he remains our soul-satisfying dwelling place. The second half of this passage, as, as we read, as you heard, you see there, there are several hope-filled requests here which, which are, are wonderful, we're going to talk about them a little bit. I would encourage you to, to spend more time meditating on them. But before we do that, let's just, let's just notice something a little bit larger here. Moses is actually asking for these things. Moses is asking for satisfaction and joy and gladness, and power, and favor, and purpose in life, voicing these requests on behalf of the same people to the same God that was in the first half of the psalm. He didn't switch contexts. You know, that's for the bad people, and now for us good people. No, it's, it's the same, the people. He's voicing these requests He's daring to ask, you, you the God who knows anger and, and wrath, you have afflicted us, you have made us see evil. That's right there in verse 15. Okay, now please make us glad. Not just a little glad. Verse 14. Satisfy us with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Not just as long as you've afflicted us, but on past that, for all our days, forever, satisfy us. Don't give us just a little bit of good to maybe sort of balance out the bad, but satisfy us, fill us fully forever with gladness and joy. How can he ask such a thing? 
This is particularly important if you are right in the heart of the context here. If you're sitting in the middle of it, if you see your sin written in 82-point font on the wall, you see it there. How do you pray like that? How do you dare pray like that? Because you should. Because you should. Moses can pray like this. He can ask this because he's working under a massive and important and controlling assumption. One that we're supposed to work under too. One that you're supposed to work under too. Sometimes we forget it though. When we've got an enemy who strongly wants us to forget it. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Does not mean used to be but aren't anymore means you have been and still are and always will be. Verse 17, you remain the Lord our God. Verse 16 and 13, we remain your servants. Verse 14, you are the God of steadfast love, of covenant faithful love. There is a relationship here that abides, that remains. Think about Hebrews 12 again. The Lord disciplines who? Whom does he discipline? The one he loves. The one he's in relationship with, his son. So discipline is painful, sure, if it comes. Affliction is is difficult and hard, it should not make us doubt, though, this relationship with him. So there, the, it feels like that. We, we question when people do things that we don't like to us, we question, do you like me anymore? Are you against me? And there's a voice trying to whisper in yourself, see, he hates you. That anger with your sin, he's actually angry with you. He hates you. Chuck him. He's chucked you. That's a voice that's arguing that in your mind. But no. Moses does not doubt this relationship, and we should not either. Now, indeed, he's got some questions. How long, O Lord? How long? How how much longer do we have to sit in this spot? I don't know. I would like it to end, please. How long will you remain silent? How much longer will you afflict, keep your distance? But the great assumption at work behind the crying out, the, the calling out here in the final verses, is that there is someone who's still on the other end of the line. And that someone is still listening. That someone is still our true home. He is still our heart satisfaction. He is still full of steadfast love and mercy, still inclined to pity, to have compassion on his people, still has favor in himself for his own. Still is the one that you were made for. Still is the one in whom your gladness and joy forever is truly found. That all is still the case. He still strongly wants that for you, even while he's angered by your sin. It's not one or the other. In the same psalm, how does that fit together? How does it fit together that he can be angered at sin and yet still want to cause me great gladness and joy? Well, Moses would put that together in in one way. He'd resolve that tension 
in one way, and we can think of a better, new and better way to resolve that tension, what Moses' way was always pointing towards. You know this. You know the story here. We are not brought to a total end, in the words of verse 7. We are not brought to a total end by God's anger. We are not ultimately, eternally dismayed by God's wrath. Because God provided another one to be fully and finally dismayed by his wrath. Not just an animal, as Moses would know. I never really cut it. But this is what points us towards Jesus. Christ bears away the penalty of our sin to make us God's people so that now we can know, know that every bit of God's hand on us, every bit of God's chastising on us, every bit of God's affliction on us belongs under the word discipline and it is for our good not for our destruction. It's turned, it's turned consequence to be redemptive, to fix us and grow us and not to destroy us. We may not know how and we may not know how long and we may not know the whole bigger picture because everything, of course, is happening to us, is happening to other people who are around us participating in it too. God's at work in a hundred different ways. We may not know the bigger picture, but we can know this. Some of you have perhaps heard or read a, f- a famous poem by an old writer named William Cooper. The, the most famous piece of that is this, this couplet, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The whole, the whole poem's worth reading. The whole, the whole thing's great. But if that little couplet right there, maybe you can remember that. I'm seeing frowning providence. I'm seeing difficulty. I'm seeing affliction. But I know. Why? Because the gospel's true. I know that behind that, behind that there is a God who smiles at me. Am I seeing and meeting his, his anger right now? Yes, his frown. But behind that is a God who smiles, who is a God of steadfast love and mercy. That's a legitimate reason for you to assume, for you to better yet trust that he will have compassion on you, that he will in the morning, verse 14, whenever morning is, After the darkness of night, in the morning, he will satisfy you with his steadfast love. That's what he wants to do for you, his beloved. He remains the God who loves you with an everlasting love, wide, long, and high, and deep. That is his character towards you, and it is secured for you in the gospel never to be lost. God himself has acted to secure himself as dwelling place for you. 
banking on all of that then? You come asking. I know. I believe the gospel. I know you are my dwelling place still. You're the one in whom I'm satisfied. So I'm going to come in faith and I'm going to ask, please, Lord, come show yourself to me. Please, Lord, come make me glad. Please, Lord, come show me your glorious power, your work in life. Please, Lord, come pour out your favor upon me. Please, Lord, give me again light and purpose in my living. Each one of those requests are, are worth you meditating on individually. But all together, what they're, what they're saying is, please, Lord, come and bring me into the experience of you as refuge, as you as home. all a package together to know the love of God for you and to rejoice and be glad in him and to experience not only his refining affliction but his favor to live in his kingdom that's to live with him this is what Moses prays for the people and if you think about it it's what Christ prays for his people now. Father, because I know you have a place where you have put your wrath permanently, you are not angry permanently. You are not angry in a condemning sense with these people. So will you satisfy them with your love? Will you draw near to them and show your favor to them? He ever lives now to intercede for his people, asking that God would draw you out of the world and make you wise, and that God would deliver himself to you in all of his fullness for your joy. Moses prays this. Jesus prays like this. You should pray like this. The psalm here is written for you to pick up and take yourself to your place where you can be, your den, your, your swing in the backyard, where, wherever you go to take this yourself and say, Lord, would you grow in me a, a wise heart that, that shuns, that runs from, that, that turns away from sin and temptation in the fear of you. And that sees this life as passing away and so has a greater eternal perspective on how I should spend this time now. You want that in me. When you're refining me, you're always trying to work that in me. And Lord, will you also then satisfy me with yourself and make me glad and show me your work, your favor, and make me useful in your kingdom. I bank on the fact that you are mine and I am yours. But I ask you, do these things in me. May he do these things in us. May he grow us up and mature us and deliver us to himself. Let me pray.
Lord, you are our dwelling place. You cause us to feel that it's sweet, to feel that as hope. Will you grow us in wisdom so that we'll walk through life here now carefully? Will you show us the dwelling place so that we'll walk through life here joyfully? You work in different ways at different times in, in our lives, and maybe there are some here right now who are particularly weighted down, who, who particularly sense their own guilt, who particularly wonder where you are and just hear crickets when they cry out to you. Would you give us all those in those spots particularly, would you give us all assurance that though sorrow may last for a night, joy does come in the morning and you do bring the morning you're the God of steadfast love. Give them assurance of that and conviction of that. Give us all assurance of that and conviction of that. You draw near to heal, to build up and encourage, particularly those, Lord, who, who are sorrowing. Thank you. You are a grand and big God. You care about us. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.